This is a classic example of casuistic law or case law. Of course, this would apply just as surely to your neighbor's wandering sheep or child or servant. The principle here is that you are responsible for doing the good that is in your power to do even to an enemy. You don't get to be a disinterested bystander. You don't get to say, this is not my problem. The law requires you to do the good you can do even to an enemy. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. As we've been talking about for a few weeks now, the law reveals to us the character of God and it teaches us how to live generously and lovingly with other people, even with people who hate us. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 23. In this chapter, we have a series of laws that seem to have been arranged according to theme. We have a group of laws focused on honesty, justice, and fair treatment for all. After that, we have a section dealing with Sabbaths and festivals, following which there is a section about obeying God during and after the conquest. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. All of these laws are really expansions upon the Ninth Commandment. Before DNA testing and surveillance cameras, justice depended almost entirely upon reliable eyewitness testimony. In the Bible, two to three witnesses were generally required for a conviction, thus the prohibition here against joining with another person as a malicious witness. In that world, in that system, if two to three people agreed together to give false testimony, they could get just about anyone convicted of just about anything. And that obviously would be a great evil and a great danger to a fair and stable society. We think of the story of Naboth, for example, by means of Collusion and false testimony. An innocent man was murdered and his property seized by a tyrant. That is precisely what these laws are intended to guard against. Verse 3 reminds us that justice ought to be blind. It ought not to favor anyone, even the poor. We ought not to let our prejudice for or against the rich in society influence the testimony that we give. That is a word that is needed in every generation, regardless of which way the prejudices in culture are currently leaning. Verse 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. This is a classic example of casuistic law or case law. Of course, this would apply just as surely to your neighbor's wandering sheep or child or servant. The principle here is that you are responsible for doing the good that is in your power to do even to an enemy. You don't get to be a disinterested bystander. You don't get to say, this is not my problem. The law requires you to do the good you can do even to an enemy. 
Now, by the way, this gives us the opportunity to reflect upon the relationship of Jesus to the law. Some poorly informed Christians operate under the assumption that Jesus corrected the errors and shortcomings of the Old Testament law, but that isn't at all what he did. Jesus presented himself as the authoritative interpreter of the law. He never disagreed with the law, although he often disagreed with the majority interpretation of his day. We see that exactly in this scenario. In Matthew 5, 43 to 45, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Closed quote. Now, Where would people have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy? Certainly not in the Bible. Certainly not in Exodus 23. So where have they heard that? Well, of course, they'd heard it from the religious authorities of the day. So Jesus is clearly correcting them. He is saying, they taught you this, but I am telling you that. And what Jesus is telling them is actually the correct, and dare we say, obvious, interpretation of the law. This law here in Exodus 23 is commanding people to do good even to their enemies. Don't ever let anyone tell you that Jesus is nicer than the Old Testament. Jesus wrote the Old Testament. He is the spirit of prophecy, after all, and the word of God made flesh. So it would be weird for Jesus to correct Jesus. And thanks be to God, that's not what we see in the Bible. Old Testament and new. We are told to do good, even to those who hate us. Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here for a second, because you said in the program audio, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't correct the law, but rather he corrects several wrong interpretations of the law. I can see that with respect to what Jesus says about murder or lust, but what about Matthew 5, 38, 40, where Jesus says, quote, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. End quote. There Jesus does seem to be contradicting or maybe correcting the law, doesn't he? Actually, I don't think so. The the lex talionis, or the law of the tooth, comes from Exodus 21. That's that's that eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth thing, which you just read. The purpose of that law is to establish the general principle that the punishment should fit the crime. We shouldn't execute people for stealing a loaf of bread. But if you kill someone, if you shed their blood, then the state has the right to shed your blood. The principle of lex talionis is establishing a connection between crime and punishment. It's literally a law governing the application of the law. But Jesus in Matthew 5 is speaking to private citizens. He's saying to them, as my followers, I'm telling you not to seek personal vengeance of any kind. I'm telling you to hold your possessions and your dignity loosely. I'm telling you to forgive as you've been forgiven. But that doesn't mean that the state has to forgive. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that one of the reasons that we can obey Jesus' command here as private citizens is because the state isn't subject to this command, and neither is God himself. 
He says in Romans 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And then in Romans 13, 4, speaking about the king or the magistrate, he says, If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Close quote. So the king is not turning the other cheek, and God is not turning the other cheek, and therefore, Paul says, you, Christian, can afford to do what Jesus told you to do. You can be forgiving. You can be a person of peace. Because the magistrate is going to do his thing, and God is going to do his thing. No one is going to get away with anything. They're going to pay for it in court, or they're going to pay for it at the final judgment. Sin is going to be dealt with, either in the courts, on the cross of Jesus Christ, or at the final judgment. So in Matthew 5, 38-40, Jesus is not contradicting what the law says in terms of crime and punishment. Rather, he is rebuking the misapplication of this law to the matter of personal grievance. He is saying, the rule of lex talionis is for the courts. My rule for you is the rule of mercy and forgiveness. So again, I don't think Jesus is correcting the law. I think he's correcting a wrong interpretation and application of the law. All right. So right law Wrong application. All right, that makes a ton of sense. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 4. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Here we have the same principle using an opposite scenario as the one we encountered in verse 3. The law forbids favoritism, either in favor of the poor or here in favor of the rich against the poor. We aren't to let people buy their way out of trouble. We aren't to take a bribe so as to look the other way. Just tell the truth. Treat all people fairly, regardless of their socioeconomic standing. That's what we're being told here. Verse 9. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. This law is largely a repetition of the one given in Exodus 22, verse 21. However, that law was directed at the individual Israelite, whereas this one is understood by commentators as directed to a judge. Within the court system, There ought not to be one standard for citizens and another standard for refugees and aliens. The Jews of all people should understand what it feels like to be oppressed in a foreign land. Again, the uniting theme here is justice and fairness for all. Thanks be to God. Verse 10. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year... You shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Here we see that the principle of Sabbath was woven into the life and culture of the Jewish people. It was about far more than resting and worshiping on the seventh day. 
the principle was to extend to the care of animals and the tending of crops and the managing of vineyards. Now, most scholars assume here that the principle of Sabbath was applied differently to lands and crops than to people and animals. The Sabbath rest once a week happened on the same day for all people. The fourth commandment makes that clear. The Jewish person was not to say to his slave, you can rest tomorrow, but work today so that I can enjoy my Sabbath. No, no. Everyone was to rest and worship together. But the Sabbath principle was applied differently to crops and fields, who obviously were not invited to join with the community for worship. Here, a principle of crop rotation appears to have been observed. You would rest your field every seventh year, but then you might rest another field the next year and another field the following year. The point is that they didn't all need to rest on the same year that would have led to mass starvation. The principle then is that all things in nature appear to work best on some kind of six on one off rotation. Everything was designed with a certain amount of rest factored in. This principle also allows for a basic provision of food to wildlife and the poor. While the field is resting, poor people were welcome to harvest whatever they could off the land in terms of what was growing naturally. And the animals, too, were welcome to graze the land. Agricultural experts say that actually this is good for the land in terms of nitrogen recapture and aeration. So again, God seems to have designed the land to not respond to overworking. God is rigging the game, as it were, to remind his people that work is not the sum total of what it means to be human. Rest in regular rotation actually puts you and your animal and your field ahead of the game. Verse 13, pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Now, if you zoom out here, I think you'll see that this verse is actually the centerpiece of this entire section of law. This is why it is helpful to have a Bible open in front of you. Obviously, those of you who are commuting are free to disregard that general principle, but with a Bible open, you can see that all of verses 10 to 19 forms a cohesive unit. My Bible gives it the heading, Laws About the Sabbath and Festivals. Now, you've heard me say before that usually in Jewish writings, the main point or the unifying theme is likely to be found in the middle. We call this chiastic structure or sometimes sandwich structure. In a sandwich, the good part is in the middle. So here, verses 10 to 12 and verses 14 to 19 are the bread. They are drawing your attention inward toward the meat or the main unifying theme in verse 13, which is, as you can see for yourself, a restatement and amplification of the first commandment. The text as a whole, therefore, is saying that the Jewish people will pay attention to God and will develop singular allegiance to God by faithfully adhering to the Sabbath regulations and by keeping these three annual festivals. By means of these things, weekly, seasonal, and annual things, they will be reminded that blessing comes from a faithful, careful, and loyal walk with the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's hear then about these three annual festivals, beginning at verse 14. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. 
You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the firstfruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. So the three main feasts are introduced here and then explained in much greater detail in the book of Leviticus. Verses 18 to 19 provide some relevant proscriptions and prohibitions with respect to these festivals. Verse 18, You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, in terms of this very odd prohibition in verse 19b about not boiling a young goat in its mother's milk, R. Allen Cole says helpfully here, the Canaanite texts show this to be a magic spell. So the prescription is more ritual than humane. Maimonides, the medieval Jewish scholar, warned us that the rite was connected with fertility magic, closed quote. So, apparently, boiling a goat in its mother's milk was part of an occult ritual associated with a Canaanite festival. Thus, God is saying, you're going to encounter some weird stuff in Canaan. Don't think for a second that you can bring that nonsense into the worship that I am commanding here. The two will not mix. You need to worship me according to the instructions that I am giving you. Worshiping the God of the Bible in the way of the world is still idolatry, brothers and sisters, so we must be careful not to do it. That's the basic message here, a message that needs to be repeated in every time and generation. Verse 20, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. So here at the end of this section about laws, there is a promise of power and presence connected to the careful keeping of these laws. We need to pause and make sure that we've seen that. There's a very important principle here, and it is that success requires obedience. Now, some Christians don't like it when we put too great an emphasis on obedience. After all, they'll say we're saved by grace, not by works. And of course, that is true. We are saved by grace. And the Israelites were saved by grace. They didn't help God at all when it came to defeating Pharaoh and parting the Red Sea. So they were saved by grace. Amen. And yet, they're being told right here in the Bible that their future success as a saved people was in fact connected to the matter of their obedience. So to be clear, obedience doesn't save us. But it does factor into our success. That's what verse 21 is saying. And by the way, that sounds an awful lot like what we read in the New Testament. In James 5, 16, it says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Or as I first learned it in the King James Version, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Either way is fine. And either way, a clear connection is made between power in your prayer life and righteousness as a person. So there is a connection here between obedience and power or obedience and presence, however you want to say that, Old Testament and New. 
verse 22. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you, and I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from among you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods, They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So here, the presence and power of the Lord is promised to the Israelites in the form of the angel of the Lord. Now, as to the precise identity of this angel of the Lord, we talked about that already back in chapter 3. It is enough for us to notice that in some sense, The angel of the Lord is identical with Yahweh. What he says is what God says. You can see that in verse 22. God's name is in him. You can see that in verse 21. So as D.A. Carson, for example, says, this angel of the Lord is some manifestation of God himself, closed quote. We'll leave it there for now. The point is that if God's people are careful to listen to what God says through this angel, then God will do their fighting for them. He will cause fear and terror to settle on their enemies, and they will turn their backs before them. The text also says that God will defeat their enemies and establish them in the land gradually. And of course, we read about that happening in the book of Joshua. There was a central campaign, and then later a southern campaign, and then still later a northern campaign. And not only was it gradual, but we also discovered that it was partial because, in fact, they did not obey the voice of the Lord, and therefore they did not fully possess the promised land until the time of David, which introduces another important principle, and that is that disobedience delays enjoyment of the promises of God. God's promises are unconditional in the sense that they are certain, but possession of them and enjoyment of them is undeniably connected to the matter of our obedience. And that, of course, introduces a great conundrum that isn't finally resolved until the coming and the work of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I want to go back to verse 22, if I could. It says, quote, But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries, close quote. 
So here, a pretty clear connection is being made between obedience and power. God is saying that if the people are obedient, then he will fight their battles and give them everything he promised they would enjoy in the land. Now, you mentioned that the ultimate fulfillment of that is in Jesus, but is there a sense in which that principle still applies, at least to some degree, for the everyday Christian? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it would be fair to say that the prosperity gospel preachers go way too far with this, that they have no real category for suffering. Prosperity gospel preachers don't know what to do with the book of Job, for example, or they don't know what to do with Paul's thorn in the flesh or with the joy that the Apostle James tells us to feel when we experience trials of various kinds. But some people, I think, in pushing back on the prosperity gospel find themselves in the ditch on the other side of the road. They unintentionally break the connection that does seem to exist in the Bible between obedience and power. The Apostle James says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. That's James 5, 16. The Apostle John says something similar. In 1 John 3, 22, he says, Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So, There is clearly a connection between obedience and power in prayer. God isn't going to bless you or help you if you are doing sinful and stupid things. But if, like John, you're acting obediently and pursuing God-honoring things, then I believe you will experience greater help and greater power in terms of answered prayer. Amen. Praise God for that. Greater things. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. And don't forget to tune in to Life 100.3 next Sunday morning for the next chapter in our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 